Our scripture reading today is from Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning in town. Uh, in case we haven't met, my name is Scott. I am actually uh, stationed most of the time over at the CPC Central location. Some of you, if you're new, you may not realize that in town is actually part of, of a, a bigger thing uh, called Christ Presbyterian Church. And uh, there are two locations, one here and, and the one uh, where I'm usually situated is off of Old Hickory Boulevard. Every now and then, Stacy and I will bounce back and forth and, and preach the whole, the whole morning. Uh, and and uh, it's my privilege to get to do that today as we uh, open up this amazing passage. Uh, at both locations, we've, we, uh, we are now uh, this week in our second sermon in a five-part series that we're calling The Greatest Chapter Ever Written, and uh, I hope you'll agree with us, uh, along with G.K. Chesterton and N.T. Wright and Martin Lloyd-Jones and many others who have called this chapter The Greatest Chapter Ever Written. I hope you'll agree with us after, after we're done with this series. I hope we'll do it justice. But today what we're talking about is how God has called his daughters and sons to become heirs of everything. We have a huge inheritance that uh, is waiting for us, but that's also ours right now. And so I just want to dive into that. But I want to get uh, the awkward part, the potentially awkward part, out of the way first, where it says in verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Um, this is not a gender-exclusive statement. If, if you're a Bible reader, uh, especially if you travel through the New Testament, study the teaching of the New Testament, you'll discover pretty quickly that there are all kinds of family metaphors that, that are used. Uh, so just as um, women and girls are included in the designation sons of God, men and boys uh, who, who have placed their trust in Christ are included in the designation you are the bride of Christ. Uh, these are various ways that God is trying to get across to us how he wishes to relate to us as his kids. And so what I want to do today is to start with an excerpt from J.I. Packer. Uh, and he said this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his whole outlook on life, he doesn't understand Christianity very well. And so today what I want to do is to help us understand Christianity very well uh, by, by unpacking uh, just a little bit, just a few slivers of what it means to 
belong to God as our Father. Uh, this is a, a, a set of riches that's inexhaustible, and so to a million points that could be taught, I'm, I'm going to just teach four. We're heirs of his tenderness, we're heirs of his discipline, we're heirs of his love, and we are heirs of his blended family. So we'll start first with his tenderness. His tenderness is already something that we have access to through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So these are two words. The word for father is a Greek word, pater. The word for uh, Abba is an Aramaic word, Abba. And I'll get into the significance of that Greek-Aramaic distinction uh, momentarily, but uh, what I want to say First, uh, especially having to do with this word Abba, is that this is an intimate address. It's the cry that small children would make to a trusted father when they know that the father has their best interest in mind and is committed to protect them and shield them and hold them and so on. Our equivalent in English might be something like Papa or Daddy. And Before we move on, it's important to understand that to Jewish ears, particularly those who were schooled in the New, or I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, to Jewish ears in the first century, using a name like Abba, like Papa, like Daddy, to address God would have been uh, seen as irreverent and even blasphemous. No ancient Jew would dare use the word Abba in reference to God. You may or may not know this, but when, uh, when Jewish communities gather together and read from the Old Testament scriptures, whenever they would come across the name Yahweh, which is the, the covenant name for God, it's the most dominant name in the Old Testament for him, they would replace that word Yahweh with Adonai. And whenever scribes would be copying, you know, they didn't have photocopiers or email or, you know, digital attachments and PDFs, they copied everything with hand or by hand. And so whenever a scribe would come across the name Yahweh, they would actually remove a couple of letters because they did not believe they were worthy to write out the whole name. So just a passing thought, maybe we could recover some of that reverence. For, 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 for the nature and character of God. Maybe there's an awestruckness that we are missing out on because we have uh, chosen to emphasize only the lamb-like attributes of God and, and, and not consider the lion-like attributes, i.e., he is a consuming fire. He's a consuming fire. He still is, always has been. He never changes. You know, so ancient Jews would never call God Abba because... He's too transcendent, he's too holy for human lips to speak or for human hands to write about. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right, they would send the priest into uh, this little area in the temple, this little enclosed area called the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And, And they would tie a rope around the priest's waist in case he was struck dead in the presence of God. Uh, you know, back in the book of Judges, we see an instance where 
A man named Manoah and his wife are given a, a brief glimpse, kind of like a solar eclipse, brief glimpse of, of, of God. And, and Manoah immediately and impulsively turns to his wife and says, prepare to die because we've seen the Lord. So there was an awestruckness that wouldn't even dare write or say the name of Yahweh. And now you have these Christians coming in with the audacity to call him Abba, to call him Daddy, Papa. And why? Because this is the witness of the Holy Spirit. That the consuming fire is now your father. The fire is your father. You have received, as it says in verse 15, adoption as sons, which calls you into an intimacy that compels you to cry to him, Abba, Father. Because that same spirit is bearing witness to your spirit that you are a daughter, that you are a son of the most high God. How could this have been made true? How can this God who, you know, as the scriptures say, lives in unapproachable light, all of a sudden be so accessible, so tender, so safe? How could this be? Well, it's this little phrase that Paul uses umpteen times in his letters. This is a phrase he uses more than any other phrase. You are in Christ. You're in Christ. Or here it says you're, you're heirs with Christ. Basically, the summary is this. His life is now our life. The, 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 the perfection that is the life of Christ, the glory and holiness that is the life of Christ now covers us. We are clothed by faith in him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so when God looks at you, all he sees is the perfection and beauty and glory of Jesus. On your best day and on your worst day, he sees that perfection because you're covered with it. But we're also heirs of his death, right? Because not only did he live the life that we should have lived, but didn't he died the death that we would have had to die. Complete separation, God turning his back on us. That's what's due to us, and Jesus went through that in our stead so that there's no shame, no guilt, no history being held against us anymore. As it says from our passage last week, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Isn't it beautiful? Romans 8 begins, no condemnation, and then it ends, no separation. I'm convinced that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So this is how it's true. We are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. And just to tease you a little bit for the message that Stacy will be bringing next week, we also share Jesus's future where it says we have suffered with him, we will also be glorified with him. This is a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ came up from the dead on the third day, raised incorruptible, you know, went from having five senses to who knows how many, but enough senses that that enabled him to fly, that enabled him to pass through walls, etc., we can't, our future is unimaginable. But what we do know about resurrection is this, particularly for the, the anxious person inside of us, uh, for the sufferer uh, that, 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 that 
is inside of us, for that part of us that wants to say with Macbeth, you know, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Here is the worst case scenario. Here's how bad it's going to get for you 150 years from now. Resurrection, everlasting life. That's your long-term worst case scenario. This is an incredibly hopeful text. So the starting point is this. Do you fear God? Do you ascribe to him more weight, more significance, more driving force and impact in your life than any person, place, or thing? Do you fear God? If the answer is yes, you don't ever have to be afraid of anything, including God. So, we're heirs of his tenderness. That's the environment that prepares us for the next one. We're also heirs of his discipline. If we look at verse 13, it says that his vision, God's vision, our Father's vision, is to help us as his children put to death the deeds of the body so that we will live. Put to death those things in us that could destroy us if we let them abide. God is a participant, an initiator of, of the expelling of every kind of sickness in our lives, whether we're talking about physical malady or spiritual malady or psychological or spiritual, in the end, God is going to expunge everything unhealthy and life-sucking out of our systems, sometimes against our will. And he'll do that by giving us laws that are good for us but that we hate. But he says, walk in them anyway because I love you more than you love you and I know you better than you know you. And sometimes through the crucible of suffering. All the sons of God are led by his spirit. And by the way, to be led by the spirit of God is to be led to a cross, right? If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself daily, take up a cross, follow me. The way to glory is the path of suffering. Again, having suffered with him, we will be glorified with him. And so there's this article I came across Last week, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a critique of a, of a parenting style that, that has actually dominated American parenting for the last 30 or 40 years. And it's a parenting style in which the children no longer follow the lead of the parents, but the parents follow the lead of the kids. It's called the child-centered approach, uh, and it was initiated by a very famous uh, writer named Dr. Spock, and he's not the one from Star Trek. It's a different Dr. Spock. And this particular article that I, that I came across last week, is the title is, How Dr. Spock is Destroying America. So, here, here, listen to this excerpt. Instead of stressing the importance of teaching self-denial and respect for authority, Spock emphasized accommodating children's feelings and catering to their preferences. No longer did children learn they could endure Brussels sprouts and suffer through daily Chores. This was before Brussels sprouts were cool. <laughs> Using Spock's approach, parents began to feed self-indulgence instead of instilling self-control. Homes were becoming less parent-directed and more child-centered. As parents elevated children's freedom of expression and natural cravings, children became more outspoken, more defiant, and more demanding of gratification. In fact, they came to view gratification as a right. God does not give rights 
like this. He gives you a right to freedom. He gives you a right to call yourself a child of God. He gives you a right to call him Abba, Papa. The fire is your daddy. Gives you all these rights. Gives you his name. But he does not give you the right to be a fool on his watch. And you're always on his watch. Because to spoil is to destroy. So, in town has a, a good share of young parents. Um, and if you're a young parent, let's say you got a three-year-old, a four-year-old, five-year-old, you know what the well child visit is to the doctor, right? That's when you take your healthy child into the doctor so the doctor can stick a needle in your healthy child to ensure that the child stays healthy with respect to various diseases that they're being vaccinated for and protected from by that little liquid that's injected into them by that painful needle. So here was our experience with our two daughters. We decided that we were going to partner on this. Patty and I did. We were going to bring them into the doctor together. And each and every time on the well child's visit, Patty's role was to comfort the child, remind them that they're safe and protected and loved and everything's going to be okay. My role was to hold them down. <laughs> My role was to discipline them. My role was to protect them from themselves. And oftentimes I would get this look of betrayal. Like, I, th I thought we were friends. I thought we were on the, the same side. And now you're holding me down so this stranger can stick a needle in me. What the child doesn't understand, the child doesn't understand. If you give a kid a vote, the vote is always going to be, no, let me go. Give me my rights. I hate needles. Away with those needles. Have you ever felt held down by or needled by God? Have you ever had this momentary shift go on in your heart? Or maybe it's a, a long-term shift where God who you thought was on your side has become an enemy, has become a betrayer to you because of some set of circumstances or because of some path that he's called you to walk so clearly in the scriptures and you just don't want to go there. You ever feel held down, needled by God? Is it because he's against you or is it because he's for you? God is aggressive against our foolishness because he is fiercely protective of our health and our life. You know, John Owen, the, the late Puritan, said, always be killing sin or sin will always be killing you. Foolish hearts need a tender father who is also tough. Who doesn't follow the Dr. Spock model of child-centered parenting. Declaring peace, peace when there is no peace. Affirming entitlement. Feeding entitlement. No. God loves us enough to remind us how foolish we can be. And sometimes he has to show us that he loves us more than we love ourselves and he knows us better than we know ourselves and sometimes we don't find that out until it's in retrospect. But, but, but eventually wise hearts 
become awakened to the wisdom of God in these things. So we're heirs of his tenderness, heirs of his discipline, heirs of his love, heirs of his affection, heirs of his passion, where it says we cry, Abba, Father. There's a, there's a Greek verb here that's translated we cry. It's a bold cry. It's a cry of enthralled intimacy. John Stott uh, wrote about this Greek verb this way. The Greek verb for we cry, kratzo, is such a strong one that it expresses a loud, spontaneous, emotional ejaculation. We say that word in church. There's no other word. You ever read the Song of Solomon? It is an endorsement of, of beautiful sexual expression inside a marriage. But it's also another family metaphor for the way that God intends to pursue us and the way that he intends for us to respond to his pursuit. The enemy is nominal Christianity. What Paul is trying to show us here is that faith is supposed to be from the gut, visceral, felt, fire, the stuff of love songs. That's what faith is supposed to be. The enemy of that is nominal Christianity or what you could call cultural Christianity, where we settle for so much less than what God has for us. It's anemic, actually, an anemic form of religion that's more cultural than personal, that's more peripheral than core, that's more small than glorious, that's more tack on to the American dream than surrender to a cosmic king who's lord over every square inch of everything. It's more convenient than it is disruptive. It's anemic. It's merely cultural. It sees Sunday as a travel day, and so on. It's bored. It's not hungry. It's not thirsty because it's filled with soda pop and potato chips already. Thank you very much. Poet Wilbur Reese I don't know where he came from uh, spiritually, but he nails it uh, with, with a little excerpt uh, uh, describing this nominal, bored way of doing religion, when really what we're after in our religion is something ulterior. Like, I, I, I'm religious because it gives me a group of friends. I'm religious because it gives me a cause to be part of. I'm religious because I'm inspired by the music. I'm religious because blah, 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 blah. No, you're religious for God. But when God has taken and moved to the periphery, it becomes nominal, it becomes cultural, it becomes anemic. Wilbur Reese just described it this way. I would like $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough of him to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or to pick beats with an immigrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Scripture knows nothing of this. 
Nothing. Scripture knows nothing of a bored, anemic faith. If you read chapter 7 and then leading into chapter 8, you, you, to, to borrow Stott's phrasing again, you, you, you get a vivid picture of the ejaculatory nature of walking with God. In Romans 7, Paul is nauseated. Nauseated. Not just a little bit bugged, but nauseated because of the incongruence between his deepest desires, which are to surrender to God in every part of his life, for God to be the complete boss of him, and his actual thought life and the the coveting and always wishing for more and never being satisfied with having God, never, never being satisfied with the, 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 the reality that, 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 that everything minus Jesus is nothing and Jesus plus nothing is everything. Like just forgetting, getting complete amnesia about that. And he gets nauseated at these patterns in his life of forgetting the riches that are his. And then we get to the end of Romans 7 where he says, who will separate me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. And then we get Romans 8 that begins with a therefore, referring back to Romans 7. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It starts with no condemnation, ends with no separation. And right in between, the story of history, the the, the trajectory of the whole universe, the cosmos is waiting on tiptoe waiting on tiptoe to be set free, to be liberated from the viral stuff and the bacterial crap that composes our foolishness. God's going to get it all out, not because he's against us, because he's for us. So heirs of his love, that's kind of what his love looks like. I want passion. I want some fire. And I'm going to stir it in you. And it's going to come and go. And it's going to ebb and flow. But there's going to be a fire there because the Holy Spirit's in you. Boredom and being filled with the Holy Spirit are incompatible realities. Finally, heirs of his blended family. This is radical. Uh, and we, we don't see it as radical be, in, 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 until we understand the, the, the fuller context of who Paul is, who he's writing to, and so on. But, but this passage represents a global family of all shapes, sizes, cultures, and colors. And the urgency in Paul's writing is this, the time to embrace it is now. You as a child of God who identifies with Jesus Christ, the dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jew upon whom all of your hope rests, do not have the option of waiting until the end of time and the end of history and the resurrection to have people in your life and at your table who don't look or think like you. Otherwise, quit praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stop praying like a hypocrite if you don't mean it. What God intends to do is to colonize the earth with pockets of his daughters and sons who live toward the future in the present so that the world will look and see and glorify our Father in heaven. How do they do that? How do they reconcile like that? How do people who vote differently go on vacations together? How does that happen? 
through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, through the unifying heart of the Father whose family is blended. So the, the, the pairing of these two words, Abba, Father, here's some of the context. Abba is an Aramaic or Jewish-speaking word. Pater is a Greek or Gentile-speaking word. And here you have the Apostle Paul putting these words together in the same way that he puts the words grace and peace to you at the beginning of so many of his letters. Grace to you being the standard salutation in a letter from a Gentile to a Gentile. Peace to you being the standard salutation in a letter from a Jew to a Jew. And what he's saying is Jew and Gentile to you. Grace and peace to you. Charlottesville, black and white to you. All right. Grace and peace. The coming together of the races under Christ. This is a man who was trained up in the school that produced rabbis who would pray every day, thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile. And now we have the Apostle Paul, a brown-skinned man, writing to white-skinned people in the Roman Empire and calling them, in verse 12, brothers. And then throughout, using the language of we and us. Did you notice this in verse 15? We cry, Abba, Father. Brown skin and white skin cry, Abba, Father, together. Along the way, this former supremacist had welcomed the disruption of God to his ethnic sensibilities and had awakened by the work of the Spirit to the fact that you cannot simultaneously love God and continue to curse those who bear his image. You can't claim to follow the narrow path and maintain a narrow embrace. Because a narrow path leads to a broad embrace, if it's the narrow path of Jesus. So I assume most of you were probably staying in touch with the news in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, just yesterday. So a lot of white supremacists, uh, mostly men, uh, descended on Charlottesville uh, for a rally. Uh, and what they were protesting is that, that Charlottesville has recently made the decision to remove certain relics from its public spaces that represent racial oppression and racial injustice from the past. And so, I don't know how many white supremacists descended upon Charlottesville to take our country back. And it... it it amazes me sometimes. Does it amaze you how ironic it is? Because so many of them were, were claiming the name of Christ as they came in to take their country back as white men. With their hiles and with their words of hatred. Do you ever consider how ironic it is that, that over the course of history, even now, that in the name of Christ, hatred of Jews has been perp perpetrated even though Jesus was a Jew? And hatred of people of color has been perpetrated even though Jesus was a person of color. Well, that's just extremism. Okay, before 
I, Scott Sauls, call this extremism, I, I have to, like Paul did, invite the Holy Spirit to disturb my own sensibilities. Am I the least bit disturbed that the Jesus of most children's Bibles and most movies that represent him is a decidedly Caucasian Jesus? Am I the least bit disturbed by that? Do I correct this revisionist approach to history and the illustrations and such with my children as I read through the children's Bibles with them? Do I feel compelled to correct these things with my children? Do I have the courage? Do I have the courage as a pastor to name my own apathy, my own implicit racial biases that, 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 that really has been so much of the air that I've breathed all my life and the water that I've swam in all of my life, kind of like a frog in the kettle thing. You just get so used to it, you don't even notice anymore. Does it bother me that a person of color typically has to work three times as hard to become a candidate for an executive position? Does it bother me that even though less than 5% of children under the age of five in the United States are white, the majority is now the minority, does it bother me that even still, when I flip on the TV, when I go to the movie theater, completely dominated by Caucasian power, does it bother me at all? Does it bother me? that I live in a city that is filled with rock walls that were built by black slaves? Does it bother me that the neighborhood that I live in was a plantation? Does it bother me that there are scores of black men, women, and children buried at the entrance of my neighborhood? Does it bother me at all? Does it bother me that the relics are still there in my city, representing a world in which it was the role of a black person to support and to serve, and it was the role of a white person to be important and to run things? Does it bother me? If I am not bothered, if I don't allow my own heart to be pinpricked by God and held down on the table, am I a Christian? Could I possibly have the Holy Spirit living in me? If I'm willing to just kind of live with my own apathy about such things? There are social implications to the gospel, and this does not mean we're replacing the gospel with the social gospel. But what it does mean is that there is no such thing in reality as a vertical faith without horizontal love toward the other. You read Paul, it's all about reconciliation. Reconciliation is the theme throughout you have to dismiss Paul. You have to dismiss him. Do you want to dismiss him? 
There are social implications. Ephesians 2, the dividing walls between heaven and earth, between God and a sinful humanity have been torn down. The veil to the Holy of Holies has been ripped open. Everybody has access. Nobody has to go in with a rope around their waist because the consuming fire is also your daddy. You're safe. In the presence of fire, you are safe. But because that dividing wall between holiness and sinfulness has been torn down, the dividing wall, Ephesians 2, has also been torn down between Jew and Gentile and every other division in the universe that they represent. So I want to close with an image from Charlottesville. This actually, um, I hope we can get it up here. PowerPoint, yes. He himself, Jesus, is our peace who has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Right here we have a black police officer who is providing a protective barrier for supremacists who are wishing him harm. This is just yesterday in your country and in my country. This isn't pre-Civil War stuff. This isn't pre-Civil Rights era. This is today. A black officer providing a protective barrier for supremacists who wish him harm. Does that sound familiar to you? Man of color providing a protective barrier for light-skinned people who wish him harm, who actually put him on a cross. Remember, he was crucified under Caesar. Aryan nation. Heil Caesar. And yet he goes up on that cross to provide a protective barrier to those who wish him harm, crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I pray that God would give us a level of sensitivity and a level of passion, a level of moxie to say even to my own heart, to our own hearts, no more. No more. No more acting as if the the extremism is over there. No more acting as if the racial supremacy, that's, that's another time, another place. No. It's in me. It's in all of us. But then the final question is, because of this protective barrier that's been provided for us by a dark-skinned Middle Eastern first century poor man who was a refugee, lived a good part of his life homeless, and when he was preaching about the ends of the earth, taking the gospel there, he was thinking of us. Like all of this is true, then, then, then really there should only be one kind of supremacy that we elevate, and that's the supremacy of Christ. I don't think it's any um, coincidence that he was born into a light brown culture. Because if you blend all the different cultures and colors, you get something really close to light brown. Maybe even the skin of Jesus is a prophetic word of such a vast inclusion in his blended family. We are heirs. Let's live like it. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our blindness. Forgive us for... um, Letting ourselves forget your tenderness, your discipline, your love, and your blended family and the significance of all of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.